0: What happens when your bookish husband gets busted by the FBI or when a young boy realizes that superheroes do exist? Each month at Hopewell Theatre, questions like these are answered when a rotating cast of some of the most hilarious and moving storytellers around take center stage and tell all. Recorded live at Hopewell Theatre in Hopewell, New Jersey, ladies and gentlemen, this really happened.
1: Welcome. My name is Joey Novick. Welcome to This Really Happened. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is a wonderful anniversary for, for us. We've been doing storytelling here at the Hopewell Theatre for six months tonight. It's, uh, very, we started in September. We've uh, brought in some of the best storytellers from New York, Philadelphia. And uh, it's been a great deal of fun. How many people, just by applause, have never been here before? Never been here before? Great. Welcome. And by applause, how many people have been here, are here for the first time? <laughs> A lot of the same people. Okay. You're checking your phones when I was here last. Okay. So you can put away the phones. You can put away... Um, you can always tell when somebody's on their phone because you see their face lit. See that shadow coming up and it looks very ominous coming up so um storytelling so i just want to plug a couple of things we have coming up tomorrow night march 9th a very good friend of mine uh julia scotty is a stand-up comedian she was a semi-finalist thank you some of you heard of uh, uh, julia Scotti. she is a uh, she was a semi-finalist on america's got talent she is uh absolutely phenomenal and uh you should come out and see her uh coming up also if you check her website another good friend of mine outstanding storyteller and Comedian uh, Gastar Almonte will be here. Another, uh, yeah, you can applaud. I mean, you know what? The thing is, if you've, if you, these people are so talented and grace this stage. Very, very outstanding performers. So uh, I, want to, I want to start out. You know, I went this week. I had the opportunity of going to two baseball games in Florida for exhibition baseball. I got to see the New York Yankees play the Pirates, and I got to see the New York Yankees play, who, somebody booing the Yankees? Yeah. You boo, no, no, go ahead, you can boo the Yankees. We have 27 World Championships, go ahead and boo. <laughs> go ahead and boo, ahead. no, what team, what team are you a fan of? What team do you like? The Mets. The Mets. <laughs> I, I do love the Mets, but I know that, uh, I think, uh, Mal- I, what is it, uh, Malefort, uh, what's his name? Man, who's the guy that just got sentenced to 47 months Yeah, I think he will uh, be in jail uh, longer than the Mets will ever win a world championship. I think that's – yeah, yeah. so uh, the Mets – no, no, I do love the Mets. I have to say I do love the Mets because I always love having a minor league team play in the same city as the Yankees. I think, oh, come on, oh, come on. But I got to see my New York Yankees – I got to see my New York Yankees in Florida, and I remember um, the first game my dad ever took me to – uh, 1964. I was uh, nine years old, and my dad, in the middle of the summer, decided we were going to go to see a New York Yankee game at Yankee Stadium. And I was very excited. I have to say, I was extremely excited because both of my brothers were in sleepaway camp, and I would have an opportunity to go to a baseball game with my dad alone. So. Um, And it was a night game, so we would have to take the subway, which was also very exciting, from Brooklyn, taking three subways into the Bronx. And as we left the house, my mother gave me a chicken sandwich in a bag and said, here, so you don't have to eat any of the stadium food. You get to eat a chicken sandwich, which I was very excited about. So we took the bus to the D train, and my dad said, give me the chicken sandwich. And I handed it to him, and he threw it in the garbage. And he said, when you go to a Yankee game, you don't have a chicken sandwich. (laughs) As a matter of fact, if you had a chicken sandwich, they would throw you out of the ballpark. (laughs) Because just like in a movie theater, no food is allowed from the outside. And I believed him. So we got on the train. And my dad um, honored my request that we sit in the first car so I could watch the tracks. Have you ever done that on a New York subway? That was very cool, watching the train move, seeing the train stop at a light. And I'm thinking, my God, that is so cool that he just stops at a light, and I'm looking for people to cross, They're crossing the tracks. I was not a bright child, uh, so I didn't say that. So we changed trains. We exit 161st Street in the Bronx, and there are thousands of people going to Yankee Stadium, and I did notice that not one of them was carrying a chicken sandwich at all. We get into the stadium, and we are almost on the field. We're actually there looking at the brown dirt, the green grass, the beautiful blue sky. I was just in heaven, and I was watching Mickey Mantle up at bat taking shots both as a righty and a lefty, and I was just in, like, childhood orgasm baseball, incredible, watching the Mick hit this ball. So I said, Dad, are our seats here? I'm looking at the ground level, and he says, no, we have much better seats than these. (laughs) So we take the first escalator up to the first level, and I said, oh, are our seats here? And he goes, no, no, much better than these. We go up (coughs) maybe two or three more levels. We're all the way at the top. We climb up, we're about four levels from the top, and I'm looking, Mickey Mantle is now that big, and I'm looking out at the field and I'm saying, Dad, these are better seats? And my dad says, yeah, you can see the whole field from here. Do you really want to sit down there with the poor people? And I said, no, no, you know, he goes, well, you know, if you want to, I could save money. We could go, no, no, Dad, I'll stay up here. I'll stay up here. So it was the Kansas City Athletics versus the New York Yankees. Uh, this is 1964. I did not know what was about to happen in the rest of that season, but for that one night, I had an absolute blast. I ate two hot dogs, I had a third hot dog. Around the seventh inning, we all got up and stretched, and I couldn't believe, my dad actually said to me, he goes, because I'd never been to a baseball game before, my dad said to me, look, uh, at, at the end of the sixth inning, can you help me? Because I want to get everyone up here singing, take me out to the ball game. <laughs> And I said, everybody's gonna do that. He goes, yeah, I'm I'm just gonna get up. I'm gonna start singing. When you and I start singing, everyone will stand up and sing, take me out to the ball game. Like I said, I was not a very bright child at all. So at the end of the sixth inning, the seventh inning begins, my dad starts standing up before everyone else and and starts singing in his off tone going, take me out and everyone stands up going, wow. My dad is incredible. So I sing it. We sing a second round. We all sit down and thinking, man, my dad is really hot. So I had some more Cracker Jack. I had some more popcorn. I had peanuts. At the end of the game, I think the Yankees won like 7-6 or something. And my dad kept on saying to me, he says, look, when we get back home, mom is going to ask you about the chicken sandwich. What are we going to do about that? So he had me practice going, "Mmm, I really like the chicken sandwich over and over again. Just before we left the game, my dad said to me, oh, would you like to meet uh, my friend Mel Allen? For those of you that are not Yankee fans, Mel Allen was the longtime voice of, on radio of the New York Yankees, and i listened to him all the time. And I'm thinking, my dad, my friend Mel Allen? You know Mel Allen? And it dawned on me, of course he knows Mel Allen. If my dad can get everyone to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, of course he knows Mel Allen. So we wait online and we walk, and he says, hey, Mel, this is my son Joey. Joey, this is my good friend Mel Allen. And then Mel Allen says in that baseball voice, hey, Joey, how are you doing? I'm going, wow, it is Mel Allen. <laughs> Right, and I shake his hand, and I didn't want to wash that hand, and all the way back on the subway, my dad is testing me, and he says, so, when mom says, how was the game, what are you going to say, oh, I had a great time, and then mom's going to say, how was the chicken sandwich, what are you going to say, I'm going to say, oh, I really enjoyed the chicken sandwich. We get home. My mom is waiting on the porch. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning, way past my bedtime. And I'm telling my mom excited stories about the game. I tell her about how my dad got everyone to sing, take me out to the ball game, how I met his friend Mel Allen, how he sat in the best seats. Then the question came. My mom says, how was the chicken sandwich? And very carefully, I give the rehearsed line, oh, I love the chicken sandwich. And then my mother says, how many hot dogs did you have? And I said, four. And she looks at my dad. And I said to my dad, I'm sorry, we didn't practice that. I don't know if she was going to ask me that. You should have told me. But, you know, those are the days when you can go to Yankee Stadium, and I think that entire day cost us probably about 20 bucks, which back then was an enormous amount of money. But um, that is one thing I'll never forget, is my first game at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx with my dad. Thank you. Yeah. Excellent. So now I want to uh, bring up our first teller. Uh, this is a woman who I had the opportunity of working with, oh, about, um, oh, about two months ago at a house party. Uh, very, very funny. She has done The Moth. She has done um, a storytelling all over New York City. Please welcome the story of uh, Anita
0: Flores. like that intro, please welcome the story of Anita Flores. No, 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 no. I I really did like it. (laughs) Um, So uh, I figured out the best diet to go on immediately after a very food-filled vacation. And it is called having diarrhea for seven days straight. (laughs) It happens sometimes when you go to countries where you're not supposed to drink the water, but then you accidentally drink the water. Um, I went to visit uh, My dad is from Lima, Peru. So I went to visit our extended family there last month with my boyfriend. Now. This was my second time there. The first time that I went to Lima was 12 years ago. Um, I was 19 and I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker and none of my relatives there speak English. And I just was very quiet. I really didn't even want to make the effort while I was there because I was so embarrassed and I didn't want to like I don't know, embarrass myself. So I thought, I know what the solution here is. It's not even to try. And I think, you know, my and my dad, his first language is Spanish. So I really just hid behind him through this entire trip. And, you know, the thing that sort of bothered me the most after I left was the fact that my family... I left I left them with the impression that I am a quiet person which is not true. I know we haven't met before but I can promise you this is what I do for a living and truly I could talk to a wall. I really love talking to people and so that really bothered me. Um, and you know I told myself after that trip that I was going to I was going to put the effort in. I was going to you know, teach myself Spanish. I was gonna get a tutor. That did not happen. Uh, 10 or 11 years went by. And then my dad was uh, diagnosed with dementia about a year ago. And, you know, I'm not gonna lie, it sucks. I am an only child. My parents are divorced. Uh, You know, very morbid things started going through my head uh, I'm I'm 31. I am unmarried. I do have a, a a boyfriend, but you know, for the longest time, I was thinking like, who needs kids? And you know, now that I am, I'm my my dad's power of attorney. Like, you know, he's my first friend. I, you know, we're we're very close, and. With all the responsibility that I have now, my, my very morbid thought is not only am I having one kid, I'm gonna have two kids so they can both feed me soup and wipe my butt at the same time. So that's my goal right now is to have two kids. Um, and so, you know. When you're an only child, you're and you're a woman. You don't get to. uh, I'm not going to get to pass on this last name, and you know I can't help but like fast forward to all these things that I can't control in the future. One of them being, you know, once my dad is not here anymore, like what will become of the Flores name? Like what will be? Like my grandparents have passed away. Um, And so I started, I started to think about my family in Peru, even though it had been 12 years, I thought I I have to go, I have to go there. I have to, I have to be closer to, to my dad's side of the family. I have to be closer to my roots, but like, do these people even want to talk to me? Because truly we had exchanged like email information and I really, I really did not try and contact them. And I felt so bad about it. When I was helping my dad last year move into assisted living, I found all of these uh, phone numbers and emails from our extended family in Peru. And I said to him, "I was like, should I just like should we try and like try all these numbers and emails and see you know does anyone want to catch up after 12 years? Because he also hasn't been uh, he hasn't been staying in touch, and especially since he got sick, that is not a priority for him. He was like, yeah." Let's see what happens. So I emailed all the emails. I called all the calls or called all the numbers. And wouldn't you know it, after 12 years, almost everything bounced back except for one email that went through to my cousin Catherine, which said something like, hey, how are you? It's been 12 years. You, you know, let's catch up. And she got back to me the next day. She was really sweet. And uh, after corresponding, uh my 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 boyfriend, who is a very he has a keen eye for flights and is a very cheap person, found uh, a very cheap flight from Spirit Airlines. Has anyone flown Spirit? Yeah, exactly. That's the same reaction I've gotten from every single person I have said Spirit Airlines. Um, so I found a really cheap flight. And I booked my flight for uh, January 2019 to, to go to Lima to see my family. And I had three months until this trip. And I said to myself, I'm going to become fluent. <laughs> it's so easy. So I started watching a lot of my favorite shows in Spanish. Uh, I started listening to music in Spanish. And I definitely started fantasizing a lot about what this trip was going to be, um, I feel like I fit a very classic middle or not middle only child stereotype, which is I I definitely fantasize about like big families. I blame Olive Garden commercials. Are we familiar with Olive Garden commercials? They they really sent a very specific message to me. Um, You know, like, I thought, I want a big Italian family. And I'm not even Italian. And, you know, they're all very happy in the commercial. They've got unlimited breadsticks. And, you know, that's all I really wanted, just a big happy family and unlimited breadsticks. And I didn't, like on, on, you know, preparing for this trip, I knew my cousin Catherine was there, my other, my other cousin, uh, uh, Fiorella and their sisters and my aunt. And like, there's really no other phone numbers that I've managed to get. Um, but you know, the time comes I, uh, oh, and, and my boyfriend, he's going to meet me in Peru. He can't go with me because he has to work. So he's going to meet me three days into the trip. So I know that I'm gonna have to talk because I can't have I can't hide behind anyone. So when I get to Lima, I'm very concerned that suddenly I'm going to become like 19 again and just like go mute. But the one very terrifying uh and yet comforting thing I have to tell myself is we're gonna have to talk. There is no other choice. N- they, n- nobody speaks English. My cousin Catherine picks me up. Um, and we really just kind of like dive into it. Like we're stuck in traffic for two hours. Traffic is terrible in Lima, quite, quite terrible. Uh, and you know, we just, I, I can understand probably 70% of what she's saying and vice versa. And it becomes like a fun game of like, I'm going to have to fill in the blanks with common sense. Um, and you know, she brings me back to her house where my, where my nephew is, I have a nephew that was she called me tia, which is aunt he sorry and um, and and we stay up till 2 am because it's 12 o'clock at night by the time in the morning by the time we get back to her house and we we start talking till two o'clock in the morning, and it's this very easy progression like we don't do much either it's very much like you know I watch you know the Spanish version of Judge Judy with her which is called Caso Cerrado which is called which means case closed um the Judge Judy of Latin America does like a nice rap intro at the beginning um which is pretty great um but yeah the point is like I'm just following my family in their daily routine and it's it's very simple and there's not much to it, you know, when you, I mean, I've, you know, my parents got divorced when I was young, but it's very, it's very lovely. And, you know, when my boyfriend gets to town, I think that, you know, we're going to, we're going to our Airbnb and that was the end of the family portion of this trip. I'm thinking I'm going to get like one more dinner in with my aunt and that's it. Because I'm thinking in the mindset of my mother's side of the family. How do I put this? They're like, because I'm so I'm half Peruvian and I'm half uh, Jewish Russian on my mother's side. Um, my mother's side of the family uh, could not be more uh, dysfunctional. Let's call them like the Jewish Sopranos minus the murder. Just a lot of people are not speaking to each other. Um, and you know, I'm in this mindset of like that like like, my family warming up to me is gonna be like dating where I have to like pretend I'm not like super thirsty to like have them love me and like I'm just gonna like play it cool and be like, let's go to dinner. But what happens is we're there for eight days. So every single day, there is another Family event. It, it, there is no vacation. Like, we don't really have time to sightsee. It's like lunches and dinners and barbecues with, you know, my aunt, my uncle, my cousins, the cousin I didn't meet uh, 12 years ago. Now, all these nephews and nieces that I have. Um, and none of them make me feel bad for the fact that I'm not fluent. Um, they do call me the lobster because I burn almost immediately when I get there and I'm red for almost the entire trip. Um, I go to my uncle's house for a barbecue and we have this wonderful conversation about you know he asks me like how's your dad doing and I'm honest you know I'm like hey it's a ch- shitty situation but you know the nice thing about all of this the one good thing that's come out of this is I I have my family now like i You know, it's been so long and you guys are still here and have always been here. And he says, you know, I hope that one day you can bring your dad here. I know it would be hard, but, you know, who knows how long we'll be here. And it's this, like, beautiful moment. And then he starts talking about vacation, how he went on vacation um, in the Caribbean two years ago. And then very matter-of-factly slips in that he didn't like it because he doesn't like black people, (laughs) okay? And this is when I find out I have a racist uncle. Um, I don't know if we all have one, um, but um, it was not on my list of things to have. Now, here's the thing my Spanish is not good enough to say words like ignorance and colorism um, in Spanish. I do give him a sad face, um, you know, like a. Like, this isn't okay, (laughs) this is not okay. Um, The point is, uh, my goal the next time I go is my my Spanish is gonna be much better and we're gonna have a conversation about it. Uh, But, so other than that, you know, I thought, wow, I've got every family trope I've ever wanted. I've got the aunt with the kids who are like, don't run around the house, you're gonna hurt the dog, because my cousins have a a little chihuahua. Uh, The only thing that I feel like I'm missing out on is the older brother that gives me money. I've just heard that that is like a thing. Or maybe it's not. I feel like I've watched a lot of sitcoms growing up. Is that not true? I don't know. Um, And so uh, on on my last day of the trip, I go to my aunt's house and this is like a very beautiful thing to me about Latin American culture. My aunt is not related to me. So this is my dad's cousin. They grew up next to each other. Their moms were pregnant at the same time, but she's my aunt. That is a very common thing. Meaning I guess all of my best friends are my cousins, which I love. I love that. I'd love to start calling all of my best friends, my cousins. Um, but we, you know, she makes this delicious meal and, uh, (laughs) I could barely eat it because I already had food poisoning. Um, uh, and then, yeah. And then essentially I had this moment where I realized I had my olive garden commercial, you guys, I had it minus the unlimited breadsticks. I had the big happy family. They're not Italian, but you know, it'll do. Um, and you know, right before we left, I got really sad. Like I I started to cry. I was with my boyfriend, and I was like, I'm so sad. And he was like, Why? I was like, Because I have this incredible family, but they're so far. And you know, when when I get back to New York, what if this was like all feels like a dream? Like this beautiful, amazing trip. Like, like what if we don't see each other anymore? What if we don't talk anymore? And he said, That does not have to happen. Like. You are not who you were when you were 19. You have Facebook. They have WhatsApp. They have Facebook. There's the phone. There's FaceTime. And he was absolutely right. Um, I actually have, I'm really happy to say, I want to read this to you, that I have the aunt that sends too many memes. I've always wanted that aunt. My aunt, um, she sends me, all kinds of memes every day. I don't know if she searches them on Google, uh, but I, I'm i going to paraphrase because I can't find it. And they're all in Spanish. So basically, recently she sent me one that said, um, I'm sending you an electronic heart uh, and, and an electronic kiss to my internet sweetie. It sounds a lot cuter and makes more sense in Spanish. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the point is I... Uh, I don't feel alone anymore. And that's a really nice feeling to have. Thank you.
1: Anita Flores, thank you so much. And I have to say, as a uh, fellow Jew, I'm shocked that the Jewish part of your family has people who don't talk to each other. I'm, just, I'm shocked, I'm just absolutely, uh, I'm just amazed, because uh, anyway, standard. So our next storyteller is a uh, was a Moth Grand Slam champion. Uh, he has uh, told stories all over Brooklyn, including Tell It Brooklyn and Risk. Uh, please welcome Mark Abbott.
2: Let's go Mets. So in 1978, my father took me to see Superman. And that was the biggest event um, next to Star Wars. Leaving the theater, my father said, I need you to understand something. There are no such things as superheroes. Superheroes that you see on the screen, thats movie magic, they're not bulletproof, they're not fireproof, they don't fly, it's make believe. I need you to get that through your head. And I said, fine, I got it. We jumped to 1985, where I never really actually gave much thought to that statement, until this night when I'm up late, and I'm supposed to be in bed, and what I would do is, a little black and white TV in my room, and I would turn it on and turn the black and white just down enough so my parents wouldn't know I'm watching TV, because I love the honeymooners. And on this particular night, um, Ralph and Ed were on their way to convention in Chicago, and Norton put those handcuffs on him, and right after he says to Norton, you're not boomfin' right, I hear my mother call me And I didn't, I turned the TV off and I got real quiet and she says, I know you're up, I need you to come in here. So I walk in the room and there's my mother sitting on the corner of the bed with the phone to her ear. and She's listening, she goes, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She looks at me and she goes, your father's been shot. "Mm
3: -hmm, Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, he's in the hospital right now. My father, was a New York City police officer. Worked out in Coney Island, and probably one of the most dangerous parts of Brooklyn at that time. And it's something that you never think about when you're growing up as, um, as a child who's, who has family in law enforcement, because getting shot doesn't happen. That happens in movies and and TV shows, but it doesn't happen in real life. You don't process it. So it took me a moment to to understand what she was saying, because it didn't make sense. So she hangs up the phone and she says, listen, I've gotta go. And I said, well, is what, what happened is he, she goes, I can't talk about it. Whatever you do, do not wake your brother and tell him. When I get back, I'll have that conversation. And my aunt comes over and my mom leaves. And so now I'm up all night. And I turn the TV on, my aunt comes in, she goes, no, 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 no No television. Your mother said you're not to watch the TV, you're not to listen to the radio, nothing. Because of course all of this is gonna be on television or in some form of news. And so I'm up for the entire time. My brother is knocked out and I'm looking at him and I'm trying to figure out how to piece this together because I can't figure out how my father got shot. It doesn't make sense. And the other part I don't know is exactly what condition he's in. We know he's in the hospital. But does that mean that he's alive? Does that mean he's on life support? What does that mean? And so when my mom gets home the next morning, she wakes my brother. My brother goes into complete hysterics. She's trying to calm him down. And there are police in the house. Shirts I've never seen before, white shirts, lieutenants, couple of sergeants. And they're all asking me, are you okay, you're okay. And now I'm scared because I'm like, this, this many cops in the house, this doesn't make any sense. So we get in the car and this is what I'm told, that my father was on a routine with his partner and they got flagged down by some kids who saw a man with a gun. My father drove up, saw the guy, called him to the car. The guy reached into the bag he had and fired at point blank range into my father. Five times into the chest, then he went behind the car, reloaded, popped up, and started firing through the back window, missing his partner completely And my father managed to get out of the car, fall to the ground, see the guy, and shoot him in the leg. This guy was in custody because apparently he left a trail of blood for the police to find. But what has not been said is what condition he's in. And now I'm too terrified to ask. So we get to the hospital. We get out and we go through the back way. And on the way up, the sergeant looks at me and he says, I need you to stay close to me because it's gonna get hectic. And the elevator door opens and all I see is a sea of blue shirts, some plain clothes, and right behind them is the press. And I hear somebody yell out, the children are here, the family is here and they come running. And now the cops are like, no, 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 we're not doing this. And so now it it literally is like going through a red carpet event, although it's not very celebratory. And my mother's got my brother, because he's younger, he's freaked out. I'm trying to figure out where all these people came from. We go into this room, there's more press, and laying up in the bed, is my father laughing as he's explaining to the press what happened. And so my brother now is completely relieved and now I'm even more confused by this because I'm like, well, wait a minute, he's alive and he's laughing. Something here doesn't, something's not gelling with this. So I walk in the room and he sees me and he's, come on. And he's got, tubes going into his hands, and my mother's standing off to the side, so he now begins to tell the story again of exactly what happened. And my mother picks up this blood-soaked bulletproof vest that he had been wearing since the day they issued it. That's what the guy shot. He hit him five times in the chest, and my father explained, as he described it, it felt like hot pokers sticking him, and, he, and it dazed him. Where the blood came from was he shot him in the hand when he went behind the car and came up on the other side. His partner got hit with glass. His partner also had no vest on. So had he been driving, this would have been a completely different situation altogether. And I hear my mother make her plea to all police officers, please wear the vest. Don't go out in the street without it. And the press leave and they let us stay with my father and my brother is now calming down. And I can see my father sees my face. He's like, you still look confused. And I said, well, I just, I didn't know if you were alive or dead. Nobody was, was saying anything. And he was like, oh no, I'm fine. He's like, I'll be here for a while. We go outside, there's some press that want to talk to my brother and me. I'm the one keeping the most composure. My brother ends up on TV because he's the hysteric. So it sells better to have the sad child on TV rather than the the stoic older brother. Um, And then we go back in the room one more time because this will be the last time I see him in the hospital. And my mother basically reads him the riot act about, you know, behaving himself with the nurses. Um, My brother's just happy, and he can't wait till he comes home. And as we're leaving, this thing clicks. And I turn around, and I look at him, and I said, you told me there were no such things as superheroes. Superheroes that nobody was bulletproof. But you are, like Superman. And he looks at me and goes, if that's what's gonna get you through this, then you go ahead and take that home with you. It was at that moment, through this entire event, that when I went outside and got on the elevator, that's when I started crying because I realized superheroes do exist. Thank you.
1: Whoa. Dads, man. Just uh, dads are great. Thank you so much. That story, give me another hand, man. That was just a uh, super super story by a super storyteller. Uh, If any of you are uh, called by any of the stories that we uh, are hearing tonight, uh, we have had a feature since day one called uh, Two Minute Tales. At the end of the show, anybody who would like to share their brief story is invited to our stage and our microphone under our lights to share your story. So keep that in mind. If any of these stories kind of call to you and remind you of some story in your life that you'd like to share, um, please uh, consider coming up. We've had some great stories from audience members at the end of the show that have been uh, both funny and challenging and uh, kind of sad, but you know always just great when you get called. So I want to bring up our next storyteller. She is from Philadelphia and she competed in the Grand Slam, the 12th annual first person arts festival, and she won Best Storyteller in Philadelphia two times in a row. Please welcome uh, Marjorie Feinberg Winther.
4: Thank you. Hi. So I'm going to start my story at the end, and then I'm going to circle back. My story ends with a naked man feeding me pie. (laughs) It's funny, because men and women have a different reaction to that. Men are like, naked. Women are like, what kind of pie? (laughs) So my life wasn't always this wonderful. I used to be married uh, for 30 years. and, And the marriage was good enough. Like, my husband wasn't a lot of fun. He was a little stuffy. But I made that trade-off, women make in their 20s, where you give up the notion of ever having fun again. And in exchange, you get security and a Toyota Prius. (laughs) (laughs) But he was a teacher and later a professor. And he was brilliant. And I looked up to him. And it was a good marriage, good enough, from, from the eyebrows up. Other than that, it wasn't happening. And and when I confronted him, he said, I'm not attracted to you. You've put on this weight. I'm just, and I accepted it, and I took the blame. And I stayed with him because I was afraid to be alone. And I'd probably still be in that very constrained life. But everything changed in one day. I got a phone call. I was at work. My son called and said, Mom, the FBI's here. Dad's been arrested. I was like, "What? Because I didn't marry a bad boy, you know? I married a professor." He goes, "Yeah, he was at the airport trying to have sex or something." I, I raced home. I had taken the train, and so actually, my boss drove me home. And I got there, and there were seven FBI agents like running around my house, up and down the stairs. And they—I they, had a puppy at the time, and they put him outside, which. I was like, why is my puppy, uh, like, security, ma'am. I'm like, like, right, you watch CSI, you know, this is like the FBI, like, they tracked him on serial, whatever, you know, it's like, and they're like, were you aware that your husband was at the airport? No, and were you aware that he'd been corresponding with a a woman and her 13-year-old daughter? No. And, and they told me they'd picked him up at the airport. He had $400 in his pocket cash. And they, they had the Western Union receipts where he'd sent a plane ticket. I mean, there was actually no woman and her daughter. It was an FBI agent the whole time impersonating. But th- But they had his laptop and they had hundreds of pages of this lurid, incriminating evidence. I didn't know what to think. They they left, and my son drove me to the airport to pick up the car. And it's funny what you process. You like you can't process these huge betrayals. Like he was parked in short term parking, and like, <laughs> 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 right? <laughs> like who? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh- I just—I didn't know what to believe in. And my son's like, "Mom, I'm not gonna form an opinion until we've talked to him. We only have one side of the story." Well, that sounded fair. Well, you can't just waltz into the prison to talk to someone. Like it takes about a month to get clearance. So I had about a month where I—I I just wasn't sleeping. I—I I wasn't even angry with him yet. I was too worried about him, cause like. What's happening to him in prison? Like, this is a man who cannot function without cappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) So finally, you know, I go to the prison. And have you ever visited a prison, anybody? Like, yeah, they give you a long list of rules. Like, no hats, no belts, no tight clothes, no short skirts, no nothing low cut. You can't wear green. Like, what? What's that? And they said, "Well, the prisoners wear green." I'm like, "You afraid we're gonna clash?" <laughs> <laughs> but it's tough to get in, and, and you know they keep turning people away for violating this you know list of rules, and and I I start to go through the metal detector and it beeps, like, what the hell is this? You know, and so I you know, took off my jewelry, emptied, beep, you know, and I can't <laughs> like why is this? Beeping, And there were some mafia wives in the waiting room. They were like, honey, are you wearing an underwear? <laughs> Take off your bra. <laughs> I'm like, right, Jesus is right. That is not a good look for me. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe 40 years ago, <laughs> could have pulled it off. But anyway, I finally get in, and, you know, it's not like TV with the glass and the, it it, it was like these rows of plastic chairs and these very low tables, and they tell you where to sit, and then the prisoners come out, and and the tables are quite low, I guess they don't want people doing any, you know, funny stuff under the table, not that we would have, I mean, why why start now, but, um, (laughs) Sitting across from each other, and, and he's like, Margie, I, I want to make it up to you. L- like, like, like it was almost very formal, you know, like he's doing his ninth step, you know. And, and I'm thinking, well, how do you make it up to your wife that you're trying to have sex with a 13-year-old? Like, what are you gonna do, fucking old lady, and split the difference? <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> and, and And he's like, well, from his window of his cell, he could see these double-decker buses going by. He's like, when I get out of here, I want to take you on a double-decker bus ride. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That'll make us even. You know? But he told me, he goes, I know you're not gonna believe me, but I wasn't gonna do anything. It was a fantasy, and it just got out of control, but I'm in prison for a fantasy. Like, he's the victim here, and I kinda believed him because I've had fantasies that I wouldn't actually wanna act on. I certainly wouldn't want them in the news, you know, but uh, but it didn't add up, you know? Like, why did you have $400 in your pocket? He goes, well, I was going to take them to lunch. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, I had taken the train that day, and he'd emailed me that morning and said he couldn't pick me up at the train because he wasn't, he wasn't going to be around. And I thought, well, even if you're running off to have illicit sex with an underage girl, like, can't you be done by 547? <laughs> like, <laughs> so I realized, like, he didn't have my back, and, and, and he kept asking me for money, and, like... When we did the family budget, we hadn't factored in incarceration. Like, like I didn't even know how I was going to pay my bills. And so, so, you know, he needed money for commissary. He needed, you know, phone calls and snacks. And, and, and he's like, how much money? And I, and I said, I don't know. Listen, I've got to pay the rent. I've got to pay. He goes, I don't need to hear all that. How much can you send me? And that's when it hit me. Like, he did not have my back. You know, and, and, and I left there, and I hadn't cried yet. I hadn't, I was just deer in the headlights. It was like, it takes a long time to unravel a story. Like, I'd had 30 years of seeing him as this person I admired, and I, I didn't know who this was, and I, and I couldn't get my mind around it, and I couldn't cry, and I thought, I need to cry. I need to somehow purge. So I went to a blues bar so I could sort of wallow in collective pain. <laughs> but the problem was, it was in Chestnut Hill. Do you guys know Philly? That's kind of a bougie neighborhood. So, like, none of the musicians had ever really been through anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, na 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 na. I was mildly inconvenienced, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my cell phone got wet. I'm like, really? And so, so I was doing shots and I, I started singing like really loud like Janis Joplin songs and the manager said, Miss, you have to be quiet. And I was like, well, give me something. I need catharsis here. And he's like, well, you have to be quiet or leave. So I left and, and, and I was sitting on the curb in front of the Mermaid Tavern and I thought, this is... The lowest I've ever been. I've been thrown out of a blues bar for being too sad. (laughs) But the thing is, when you hit bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. And I thought, this is my chance to design the life I want. And maybe good enough isn't good enough. And let me put a thought out into the universe. And I know there's people who believe that you put your vision in the universe and the universe gives you a pony. But I don't remedy you. I don't believe that. I, I kind of think you put your thoughts into the universe. You're daring the universe to fuck with you. <laughs> <sighs> so I'm like, universe, I know you don't owe me anything, but give me the guts to go after what I want and I don't want good enough. I want lots. I want lots. I want stories. I want music. And I want lovers. That's what I want. And stories, hello everyone, here I am. And music, I I, I decided, I joined a, a soul line dance class. If you guys know about soul line dancing, it's it was a little weird because I was the only white person in in the class, which, I mean, everybody was nice, but Let's be honest, like, I can't push it, push it good, you know, like, I'm white, I I push it well. (laughs) And frankly, at my age, I can only drop it, like, it's room temperature, you know, I mean, it's, it's just. (laughs) But I had fun, and, and and then I thought, well, lovers, it's going to be tricky, you know, because, like, I know I'm not all that. But apparently, I am all this. (laughs) And there are men out there who like uh, full-figured women, and I want to make out with all of them. (laughs) So I met some people, and you already know how this story ends. And so what I want to say to you, the moral of the story, if your life ever shatters in two, and if you ever just feel as low as you can be, Hang in there, because at the end, there could be a naked man feeding you pie.
1: Yeah. Thank you. What a great story, man. So again, if uh, you are called to tell a story, please come up to me at the end of the show. And uh, our uh, final scheduled teller is a storyteller who's been working in New York for the last ten years. She's appeared on uh, Tell Your Friends podcast and also on Radio Free Brook- Radio Free Brooklyn. Please welcome Jennifer Glick.
3: Thank you. My mother says. We're just gonna have to think about that. Thinking's for the week. I know exactly what's gonna happen next. We are in Greensboro, North Carolina. We are in the offices of Doctors Medical Weight Loss Center. It is a beautiful prefab aluminum building at the end of High Point Road. We are sitting across the desk from a guy named Mitch. Mitch is a pit bull in a golf shirt. Behind Mitch's desk on the particle board paneling are stapled a pair of powder blue corduroy pants. You See those pants right there? They got a 50 inch waist. I was a teenager, I weighed 325 pounds, I had two dozen donuts for breakfast, I never went swimming in the summer. That is no way for a young person to live. Mitch is from New Hampshire. Mom and I are from Rochester, New York. We find ourselves in Greensboro because my parents have moved our family there to open a bagel business. It's funny because it's true. Mitch tells my mother, we got a 800 calorie a day diet. I think we could get Jennifer started on that right away. She's too young for the hormone shot. She's gotta be 16. We have this book at home about the Holocaust. The people in the Warsaw Ghetto, their ration cards gave them 300 calories a day. I can totally do this. If your family are survivors, you're right. I'm a horrible person. I'm also Jewish and I'm just that twisted. We have left a neighborhood in Rochester we never really quite fit into. The school I was supposed to go to high school had is an annual tradition called Fuck the Freshman Friday. <laughs> True, that apparently, if you were you know walking around by yourself on that Friday, you were, you could have been thrown into a locker and have Nair put on your hair. If any of you have a Jewish mother, that's not gonna happen. We then looked at this beautiful progressive private school and I was totally taken with it because everybody seemed so intellectual and kind. Let me tell you about the people you meet at progressive private school. Geniuses on their last stop before the Ivy League, discipline problems on their last stop before military school, incredibly mediocre rich people on their last stop before an incredibly comfortable life where they're hardly challenged at all. <laughs> hey, guess what? I don't fit in there either. We go, around the middle of the winter of 1980, we go down to North Carolina to visit. It's February, I can walk outside and stand on the grass in bare feet. If you've ever spent the mid-70s on the edge of Lake Ontario, it's like you went to the upside down. We watch, during during the day I go visit my new high school, in the evening we watch the Americans and the Russians play hockey for the fate of the free world, and I think to myself, you know what, I could live here. I could make this work. And then we move. And I know what I have to do to make this work, I have to transform myself. And I'm 14 years old, and the only way I know how to do that is to lose weight. We spent the afternoon at Doctors Medical Weight Loss Center. We go home. The next day, Mitch calls our house asking for me. Jennifer, I want to ask you a personal question. How many bowel movements do you have during the day? (laughs) I think I'm pretty sophisticated for somebody going into the 10th grade, but I never really had a poo talk with a grown man before. Save all that stuff for my grandma because that's her area of expertise. Uh, um, One, I think if you go on the way that you've been going on, you're going to build up intestinal plaque and slowly poison yourself. I want you to think about that. Okay. (laughs) I hang up the phone. My mother has overheard my side of the conversation. Sweetheart, people are going to say whatever they want to get exactly what they want. The next day, we drive back to Doctors Medical Weight Loss Center, and we sign up. Eight hundred calories a day goes as follows: cup of non-fat yogurt, half a grapefruit, two slices of melba toast, breakfast. Tuna, squeeze a lemon, bed of lettuce, lunch. Poached chicken, not to exceed more than four ounces. Half a cup of green beans, and if you're feeling really fancy, cantaloupe for dessert. Dinner. Also to be accompanied by 64 ounces of water, coffee, tea, or diet soda. My colon becomes the healthiest muscle in my body. I am never too far away from, either, from a bathroom. But I go in and I get weighed. The first day, I lose three pounds. The second day, I lose two pounds. The third day, I lose a pound. I lose a pound for the rest of the days of that week and the week following and then the week after that, three quarters of a pound a day and that's for two weeks and then half a pound a day and that's for two weeks and then for another week, it's a quarter pound a day and I'm mental. Because that scale is not moving the way that I want it to. And on the day that I weigh in, I, I take off my jeans because Mitch isn't in the office. And and Nancy, the receptionist, says, well, maybe we could give her the hormone shots. And that's when my mom says, you know, she's going to start school soon. I don't think we can get here every day. And I do start school. And I show up in this big southern suburban high school and Filling the halls are these women with long golden hair in pink papagala flats and pink and green plaid pants and pink sundresses with matching purses with pink Bermuda bag covers that coordinate with their outfits. An ordinary little me with my brown hair and my matching red J.C. JCPenney shortened shirt set? I am outclassed. Their male counterparts in, a, in their mint green, Carolina blue, lavender, and pink Lacoste golf shirts don't ask me to be their girlfriend. They walked around my junior high, they get called gay because in the seventh grade sense of the word, that's what they were. I don't know what's going to happen next. I know that I'm just me. And I am nothing like them. And I am incredibly confused. Because none of these people are falling at their feet to make me head cheerleader or have me be their girlfriend. They never met me before. They didn't know what a fat girl I used to be six weeks and 34 pounds ago. And I find myself at this place where... I so deeply crave acceptance from other people, and I'm just not getting it. And in the years following, I realize acceptance is something I have to give myself, and oh, friends, it takes more than six weeks and 34 pounds to get. Thank you. Good night.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> Let's have a hand for all of our storytellers, Anita, Marjorie, Jennifer, and thank you so much. Please uh, check our website. The, um, there are great films here. There are excellent musical acts here. They have a wonderful series, uh, The Art of Living Well. Uh, there are so many outstanding things at the Hopewell Theater every single night, six nights a week. They have something here for everybody. So uh, thank you for coming out and joining our stories. My name is Joey Novick, and uh, thank you and good night. Bye bye.
0: For more information on This Really
2: Happened and other programs in our selectively eclectic lineup, please visit hopewelltheater.com.